0: Hi, Chris Felton here. Welcome to my podcast where we hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. Over the next several months, we're going to take a journey through the years of messages that I've spoken in the last decade that are both memorable, monumental, and I think marking to both me and the global family. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. God bless you. Are you hungry to advance your prophetic calling and step into your unique prophetic destiny? It's time to break the silence, stand boldly in dark places, and resound the truth across the nations. Join us at the School of the Prophets, a transformative four and a half day intensive training school. You will gain understanding in your prophetic calling, refine your gifting, and grow in confidence to spearhead cultural change. Register for this year's School of the Prophets, August 7th through the 11th, in person or online at Bethel.com forward slash events. God bless. And so I I just want to take you on a a little journey. You know, Jesus said, and he said, you're the light of the world. Well, first he said, I'm the light of the world. Then he said, you're the light of the world. (laughs) And um, I, I heard a lot of messages when I was a young believer. And sometimes when I travel, still hear them people saying things that, in my mind, are not accurate. And they say things like this, in the last days the the church is gonna get brighter and brighter and the world's gonna get darker and darker. And somehow that's supposed to be a good message and I'd propose to you that that's not too much different than what Bill preached on Hezekiah. (laughs) You didn't hear what I just said. (laughs) I mean, there's something weird that it's okay with us for the world to get darker while we get brighter when we're supposed to love the world. (laughs) There's something weird that we can be okay with. We're gonna be okay. It's the rest of those guys. And we end up with a us and them kind of mentality to where as long as we're being blessed, it's okay to have an eschatology and a theology where they're not. You know, when we pray our Father who's in heaven, my question is how big is O-U-R to you? And I'm finding, we're finding that O-U-R is getting bigger and bigger. It's like almost encompassing the world now. So when Jesus said, "You're the light of the world," how many know He didn't say, "You're the light of the church." So the idea that the church is going to get brighter and brighter while the world gets darker and darker, I would propose to you that's misplaced light. And Jesus said, "Nope." And in the same in the same sentence, in the context. The next line, his next line, is no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. But he puts it, but he lights and he puts it on, but he puts it, he lights the lamp and he puts it on a lampstand. The next verse says, You're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. This is all, are you with me? In other words, Jesus is saying to you, he, he's thinking about the future eschatology, probably. <laughs> and he's saying. You're the light of the world. Okay, just to be clear, no one puts a light under a basket. How many know the only way it can get brighter in here and darker out, the only way it can get brighter in this room and darker in the room at the same time is if somehow I contain the light under some sort of container, which Jesus, in his example, called a basket or we might call it a shade. (laughs) Like, I, I can make it brighter under the shade and darker in the room. But then Jesus made sure that you knew he wasn't thinking that. Because he said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. But he sets it on a lampstand. Now, with the metaphor of the lampstand, he said, you're a city on a hill. Still talking about light. Where is the light? It's not in the church. It's in the world. And not only that, but it's unhidden, unbridled, uncovered. So, so, you know, I've shared this many times, I'm sorry if this is, like, redundant, but I feel like it's such a, it's such a now word for us, and, and that we would actually be the light of the world. Now, it's kind of easy to go, yeah, we're the light of the world! Awesome! And then not pay any attention to how the world that you're a light to is doing. It's funny to me when you say to pastors, "Like, how's it going?" They go, "Oh, my church is growing." I very seldom have anyone say, "My city's statistics have—they are 30% better than they were last year. Unemployment has dropped. You know, violent crime is down. Uh, you know, terminal illness is down. Uh, you, you know, poverty—the poverty levels are down. I mean, every time." No. So, Exaggerate. Nearly every time I talk to a leader that's a leader of a church and ask them how they're doing, they talk about what's happening in four walls on a Sunday. And I'm like, you can't change the world if you're not even trying to. And I'm probably preaching to the choir. Probably most people here, you're you're preaching this message and you're trying. And I I get it. And all, all I'm trying to do is say, this is our Putting butts in the seat isn't going to change their city. (laughs) I've quoted this many times, but I wrote the book Heavy Rain many years ago, revised it a year ago. It's my favorite book of mine. It's okay to have a favorite book of yours, isn't it? Okay. I didn't think that sounded arrogant, but the way you're like, and the way the team's holding up (laughs) thing, I'm like, never know. But in that book, my team did a statistical study of US cities, and what we found, and you probably have heard this because I've shared it so many times, but what we found is that the cities that had the greatest Christian church-going population had the worst social statistics in our nation. So if you didn't just get what I just said, let me make it super simple. The more people that go to a Christian church in a given city, the worse off the city is. I didn't say the worse off the people that went to the churches, I'm sure those people are growing and, and learning and all that. but. But the cities get worse as churches get full. Here's part of the challenge. We think, some of us think that if we had a mega church, our city would prosper. And I'd propose to you, you just go check out the places where the mega churches are and check out the social statistics. You'll see, you don't even have to study all of the United States. Just check out the 10 most populated churches in our, in our, uh, in our nation and check out the social statistics of that, of that city. And you'll see exactly what I'm saying. Let me just give you an example. Bethel was 5,000 people when I wrote that book. And we were the worst, one of the worst cities in the United States of a city under 100,000. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize our city was one of them until a year after I wrote that book. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't even bother to look at our city. (laughs) We have 5,000 people in a city of of 89,000 And we're one of the worst cities in America to live in, in a a community under 100,000. Like, we are exactly what my book said. (laughs) And we're like, oh, we're transforming culture. Like, no, we're not. No, we are being blessed, but our city isn't. And I I just think that... (sighs) I'm just trying to challenge us. I'm just saying, and you're like, what do I do? Well, I'm going to give you a few ideas, but let me start with this. Something. Something. Like, I think there was a whole bunch of really smart people in here. And I think that we spend so much time trying to help Johnny that we forget about the mayor and the governor. I met with a, a pastor this year, not long ago, and a really great man, a, a fairly large church, comes out of a great movement. and and he's a very smart man, and he said, you know, we're church planting, and we don't have time right now or the finances to help our city, and he kind of looked up at me as if that was a question, like he said as a statement, but then he looked up like, am I right? So I said, are you asking me, or are you telling me? He said, well, I have you in here to ask you. I said, well, if I was to start church, I would do what you did, pray, you know, about church planting. I... Not very good at that. But one of the first things I would do is, I would, I would go get a meeting with the mayor. And I would say to the mayor, I'm starting a church and it's going to be a church that helps the city. And I like to build a relationship with you, not so I can get anything from you, but so my church from its conception can serve you well. Is there any way, is there anything that we can serve you in right now? I said to him, I would call up the police chief and say, "Hey, are you doing anything for police officers that are doing an extraordinary job? Like we'd like to put on an award ceremony for them, or or can we put on a dinner to honor them, or what can we do for the fire department?" And I and I just started talking like that, and I said, "That doesn't take a lot of people." And he's like, "I get your point." <laughs> and he started, and so we and I was there for three days, and he and he started. I mean, just that goes. Oh, I get you. In other words, being apostolic should be right in the foundation of everything we do. From the first day we do it, I'm like, now you're getting the idea. And when when you start your church, you teach your people from the very beginning, one of our jobs is to benefit the city. Not just like, what are we against? And by the way, once in a while we have to be against something. We have three bills in California that will make it illegal to counsel someone. uh, For instance, if a five-year-old little boy, thinks he's a girl, it would, be, it would become illegal, it's already passed, to. it has to go to the Senate, it just yesterday passed, in California, it will be illegal to counsel him to do anything besides be a girl. If you write materials, if you sell materials that say that a person, a transgender person, or a homosexual person can be changed, it will become illegal in California to sell that material. If you preach messages and you get paid to preach messages that, in which people can be transformed out of, those th- out of those two areas, it will become illegal. If you have a foster home and, you're, and the foster children, you have a foster child who thinks he's a girl when he's a boy or vice versa, you will only be, you will only be able to take them to counseling that actually, that actually affirms that. So there are times when you have to stand up and go, oh, wait, like, we're not protesting everybody, but now you're taking away freedom of speech. So there are times to stand, are are you with me? Like, like, we don't want to be like, we're haters. Here's our protest. You know, Jesus said, do signs and wonders. I don't think he meant one you put on a (laughs) stick, you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be good citizens. I mean, we are, how many of you know that most of us in this room, I think all of us really, we're, we're, in, we're in democracies, which means it's a government by the people. So it shouldn't be a government by, you know, 3% of the people. It should be the government by the people. So we, it's not wrong to stand up and say, hey, I'm, I don't agree with that. That's not hating or that's not evil. now, if you're going to yell and scream and holler and, and look like an idiot, then you're not carrying the kingdom core values. If you're going to hate people because they don't agree with you, that, that's a bummer for you. It's a bummer for us, and, and, it, and it creates, like, you're supposed to love people you don't agree with, right? So, but all that to say, we should care. And one of the things I think would be really cool for us to do is, what would, what would happen if every single church had at least one person, either on staff or the smaller churches, on the, on, the, on the volunteer team, that their full-time job was to keep track of the city and help change the city. Because you can't change something that you, you <coughs> that you're not paying attention to. It's out of mind, out of you know, out of sight, out of mind. Right? I'm sorry. You guys are all right? So, um, you know, in, in Romans chapter four, you know, when Jesus said, "Make disciples of nations," uh, I, you know, I've heard some folks teach, and I think I taught for a while, like this was the great commission, the new idea. Jesus came with this great commission, but actually. And uh, God promised Abraham that he'd be a father to many nations. How many know that Abraham wasn't to be a father just to Israel? He was to be the father of many nations. And then Romans pulls that promise into the New Covenant Church. In fact, I'll read it to you: Romans four seventeen and eighteen. A father of many nations, I have made you, speaking of Abraham, in the presence of him who he have believed. Even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, and hope against hope, speaking of Abraham and Sarah not being able to have children, and hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. What I'm getting at is that we are children of Abraham, right? We're children of our father of faith. We're like, I'm following Jesus. I understand. You get the point, though. And Abraham was promised that he would be the father, not in nations, but of nations. So, when Jesus said, make disciples of nations, how many understand that that was a part of the promise to the first guy or one of the first people who ever believed in God, which was Abraham. And I'm simply saying, it's in our DNA to actually father nations. In Isaiah 61, we all love these verses, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah wrote, for the Lord has anointed me, to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak release to captives and freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. What is the outcome of all those broken people getting healed, delivered, and saved? What is the outcome? Verse four, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. The point that Isaiah is making is, he's prophesying. The the Lord's going to come, and he's going to heal people. He's going to deliver people. He's going to heal broken hearts, broken minds, and broken spirits. And those people who he heals, they will go back and restore their city. How many know the cycle's not complete when you get healed? The cycle is complete when you go back, and what happened to you, you do to your city. Are you with me? You think about the story of the the minas and the story of the the talents. Jesus told these two stories about money. This was talents and minas were both money amounts of money. And what happened to the guys that the in the story of the of the minas when they made five, when he took five minas and made five more. The Lord said to him, good, well done, good and faithful servant. I will put you over ten cities. The one who got three minas, and he turned it into six minas. And he comes to his master, and his master's like, I will put you over six cities. And the one who ditched his his mina, the Lord said, I'm going to take it from that guy who buried it, and I'm going to give it to the guy who had the most, and I'm, I'm going to put you over another city. And my point is, is that when you become responsible with the stuff God gives you, the ultimate outcome is that you get to lead cities. I love the the difference, I don't have the scripture in front of me right now, but the difference between the story of the minas and the story of the talents. In the story of talents, by the way, talent was about, I think, well, research doesn't always agree, but somewhere around $10,000. So the guy that had 10 talents had $100,000. Whatever the amount is, doesn't matter. The guys that were in the talent story said, Master, I have made you. You gave me five, I have made five more. I have made. The key word is, I have made. And the Lord said, "Good and, well done, good and faithful servants. I will put you in charge of many things. But in the story of the Midas, which is much less money, about $500. And they all started with one instead of five, three, and one. The servants come to the Lord and say, Master, your mina has made ten more mitas. Not I made them. Your money made money. And the Lord says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. I will put you over ten cities. And I was struck with the fact that when you figure out how money makes money, let me put it differently, because it's really not about money. When you figure out how to create ecosystems that cause prosperity, not when you work hard and make money, that's good, you get rewarded for that, but when you can figure out how money, master, your talents, made more talents. When you can figure out how to create ecosystems with a small amount of money, the Lord goes, you're good at creating wealth. I'll put you over cities, which tells us that God wants cities to prosper because he puts people over them that know how to create wealth. <laughs> okay. I, I, you know, I wrote a book on wealth just recently. I think you guys got a copy of it. And, and, and I'll tell you, thank you. The main reason I wrote that book, to be honest, is I feel like if we can catch the principles of wealth, we can disciple nations. And I think that our adversity to wealth is actually creating a poverty mentality. And how many know that only kings shepherd kings? Mm. And I say it this way. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Paul said, you're already kings. I, I, I'm trying to say like, you're not going to have access to the court of a king if you have a mindset of a pauper. And if you're running around like oh, I think poor people are the best, I, I don't really get I don't really get people's idea around money. It's like what they, they're like you're preaching the prosperity gospel, and I you know I I don't believe in the prosperity gospel, and you guys are doing all that claim it, and name it, and stuff. And I, I'm not doing any of that by the way. None of that's in my book. But but I'm like, and then and then in the next breath, they're praying that God would pay off their house. And like you you wanna schizophrenic, double-minded faith. You're saying, I don't believe in prosperity. God, please pay off my house. God, please get me a new car. God, please give me money to fund my, my children education. Like, hey, don't do all that. Like, if poverty is good, let's stay in it. And if poverty is good, let's stop helping Africa. And if poverty is great, then why is why did Jesus describe... Heaven with gold streets and pearl gates. No, you didn't get what I said. I'm saying, if wealth is inherently evil, then why would Jesus describe heaven with extraordinary wealth? I mean, can you imagine Jesus going, yeah, heaven's going to be like opium fields and marijuana plants. No, because you're like, we relate... Those things to something that's not good, at least for all of society. (laughs) You see where I'm going? I'm saying like if you want to be if you don't like wealth, you're not gonna like heaven. And I'm not saying like every Christian should be should have a lot of money. That's why I call it poverty, riches, and wealth. Lots of people have money but they're not wealthy. How many know if your identity is coming from what you have, you're poor, no matter how much you have. I'm only talking about wealth because the guy who took money and caused it to make more money was the only strategy in the entire New Testament about city-taking. Did you know that? The only strategy, I'm not saying there aren't others, I'm saying the only strategy that Jesus ever taught about discipling cities was people who had money, who made, that he gave money to, stewards, that made, that the money made more money. And he said, if you can do that, I will give you authority over cities. Guy takes, you know, a thousand dollars. Who cares how much it is? Let's say he takes a hundred thousand dollars and he makes it a million dollars. And God goes, okay, you did that. You took a hundred thousand dollars and you increased it 10 times. You're going to be over 10 cities. And by the way, I like what someone said. Uh, I forget. It might have been Eric's message. But when you get blessed, you get busy. Some people are like, you know, I just want to be blessed. And then, like, you have so much favor, like, I'm busy all the time. I don't know what's happened to me. You're over ten cities. And if you do really well with that, God will put you over a nation. Like, you're going to be really busy then. But how many know that if God promoted you, he protects you and he gives you grace for what you do. I just want us to get out of the mode of just enough. You remember in Egypt, it was the land of not enough. You remember it really became the land of not enough right before they left because the, the quota for bricks was raised and they got no more time to do it. It was definitely the land of not enough. How many understand? That's poverty. But they went from the land of not enough and they spent 40 years in the land of just enough. I mean, it was actually a season of just enough. Remember if they, if they, uh, if they picked more than one day's manna? it spoiled except for Fridays, the Sabbath day. But they could, not, they could not save. There was no such thing as savings. You, you, you get what I'm saying? It's like, hey, let's gather enough manna on Monday and we can take the week off. No, there was none of that. There was no savings. It was a system of just enough on purpose. That was not the promised land, folks. A lot of people are running around like, oh, I'm in the promised land. No, that's Egypt. I'm sorry. That's the wilderness. And some of us are so excited that we're out of, the, out of Egypt. We're like, we think we're in the promised land. And we're like, we're, we're, we read the Bible and it's like, well, it doesn't sound like the promised land, but it must be the promised land. It's so much better than Egypt. But the land that we're supposed to have is the land of what? Flowing with milk and honey. It's the land of what? More than enough. It's the land of more than enough. When Eric was teaching today, I was going to jump out of my seat because I missed something in my book. <laughs> I just, just wrote a book and I totally missed this beautiful example. When Jesus, when they're on the shore, he, he, Eric told the story today. I was like, I always wanted to sh- stand up and shout, Stupid. This is one of the greatest examples of Jesus and, and, they, and, and they, Jesus says to them on the boat, you know, I'm just repeating what we heard this morning or whatever it was, and you know, hey, cast your nets on the other side. And they cast their nets and they don't know it's Jesus. And then all of a sudden they have this extraordinary catch and they go, it must be Jesus. It wasn't like they caught three fish and they go, well, that's probably Jesus. He gives us just enough. You know, one dead fish floats to the top and you catch one. And you're like, oh, this is Jesus. He, he likes to give us just enough for our daily bread. No, I mean, they don't know it's Jesus. And all of a sudden their nets are ripping. You showed two different stories today. But the nets are ripping. And, then, and John goes, I think it's the Lord. How do you know that? Our nets are ripping. We, listen, we, we fished all night and got nothing. That's the world. And all of a sudden, the guy goes, put your nets on the other side. And we, we can't get all the fish in. It's got to be Jesus. It doesn't look like Jesus. It's Jesus. Trust me. The fruit is Jesus. And I'm like, wow. That was so good. i got to revise my book. I'm just trying to break off of us, like, if we're going to pastor cities and nations, we got to get out of, oh, (laughs) Oh, no, oh, my goodness, he's driving a nice car. Let's all hate him. (laughs) And then let's pray that we get one like it secretly. (laughs) I don't know if that drives you nuts. It drives me nuts. It drives me crazy. Like, if you hate wealth, then drive an old crappy car and we'll help you push the freaking thing out of our driveway. (laughs) I mean, just don't be incongruent. I'm, I'm saying, listen, if you're for poverty, then be for it. And we're like, I could celebrate that. It's like you believe what you say, you say what you believe and you live it out and it's wonderful. It's like, I think you're wrong, but you're... You, you do it with your whole heart. <laughs> that was funnier than I intended. <laughs> but please don't pray for God to give you money for things if you want to be poor. Stop ruining your prayers. It's like people say, well, sometimes God makes you sick to teach you things. Well, go run out in front of a car then and let, get run over and see what you learn from that. <laughs> Stupid stuff, you know. It's like, run over me. I'm. I got a new lesson to learn. I mean, what is that? What kind of mentality is that? And then you're gonna come out and like, hey, we'd like to be in charge of the city. Vote for me. I live under the bridge. I mean, does anybody else feel any incongruency whatsoever? And by the way, let me just say it again. I'm not talking about having that the, your spirituality is measured by having a bunch of money. Unless it is. Because you got Solomon. And, and Solomon prayed for wisdom and God goes, you didn't ask for money? You didn't ask for the head of your enemies? You didn't ask for fame? I'm gonna give you wisdom, and I'm gonna give you all these things you didn't ask for. And the Bible says that in the days of Solomon, there was so much gold that they stacked silver up on the sides of the road, it was not valuable. And it relates that Solomon was rich because of God. Abraham was rich, the Bible says, because God blessed him. And when the king of Sodom, try to give him more money. He goes, oh no, I'm not taking your money because then you'll say, you made me rich. And Saul, I mean, Abraham was rich and he wanted to make sure that everybody knew where it came from. Isaac was rich. And it says that Isaac sowed in a famine and he reaped in a hundredfold. Now, most of us are so far from farming, agricultural, you know, city, I mean, agricultural season, that we don't understand what just got said. Isaac planted in a famine. No rain. Agriculturally, scientifically, he planted and it shouldn't have grown. But it grew anyway, and it didn't just grow, it reaped a hundredfold. And then it says, it goes on to say, and Isaac grew rich. And The next verse says, and, Isaac grew ri- then, and then Isaac grew richer. And then it says, and then Isaac grew very rich all related to God. So you can't say that wealth is never attached to your relationship with God. Well, oh, come on, expand your thinking a little bit. She's like, that's not what I believe, that's not what I preached last Sunday. <laughs> well, you were wrong. Just do what I do every other Sunday, edit the last sermon I preached. It's okay to be wrong when you're on this journey, right? You learn some new stuff and you're like, hey, what I preached? Yeah, yeah, that wasn't really exactly right. <laughs> the publishers are like, hey, can I take out that two pages and I need to add two more? Like the story about the fish. <laughs> anyway, you didn't get that, but. <laughs> I'm simply saying that we have a mentality that we sabotage our own wealth. We're like, Jesus was poor. Please, not one more person write me, Jesus was poor. First of all, earth was not his home. Okay, we're like, earth wasn't Jesus' home. Okay, then stop saying he was poor. He was renting. (laughs) He told us what home was like. You know, if I go to Alaska and I'm staying in a hut, I mean, are you going to, like, determine my worth by the hut? No, I live in Reading. (laughs) <laughs> I won't say any more about that. <laughs> Careful, Chris. Shut her down. Shut her down. Uh, secondly, how can you say Jesus was poor if you can make wine out of water in 30 seconds? Oh, you're not even thinking. I'm a business guy. Mike, if I found someone who can make wine out of water and it was the best wine anyone ever tasted, I would have a partnership with him and I'd give him 50% of all the profits. <laughs> Think about it. You don't have to grow grapes. You don't have to pick grapes. You don't have to ferment grapes. You know how much work that is? Have you ever worked in a vineyard? My uncle had a vineyard. Like, you understand, you are, you are supplanting nine months of work. But you're just like, how do you make your wine? Oh, we put water in, Jesus comes. <laughs> now, some of you are like, well, that's the first time Jesus ever made wine. Let me say this to you. If you're at a wedding, and your mom is there, and they run out of wine. I mean, if Bill's at a wedding, they run out of wine. Do they turn to him like, they're out of wine. I mean, I'm saying, what would possess Mary to think Jesus could do anything about that? They're out of wine. Well, let's drink water. And I'd like to propose to you that if, if she says to Jesus, they're out of wine in a way that is obvious that she's trying to get him to do something about it, that he must have done something about it at home. Because there would be no way for her, because it says it's his first public miracle. I'd like to suggest that Jesus was doing miracles for 33 years, the world only heard about it for three. And they go, oh, look at this, it's his new ministry. No, I'd suppose he's been doing that for a long time. How'd you, ladies, how'd you like to have Jesus at home? You're like, no, I'll just take one banana, God, Jesus, Jesus, I only had one banana. There's a multitude coming tonight. Think about how you could save on groceries. How about your tax bill? I mean, anyone ever worry about April 15th? You're like, oh, it's April 14th. Oh, it's all right. We have Jesus. He always goes fishing on the 14th. Do you ever wonder things like, did the fish find a hidden treasure on the bottom, like, you know, a shipwrecked or... Or, you know, I don't, I'm sorry, I just think these things, like, I'm like, where did the fish find the coin? Like, was there more down there? If I'm Peter, you know, after dark, I go back. I'm like, hey, John, get the nets. I'm saying the idea that Jesus was some kind of transient, that, you know, didn't... Wasn't funded well. I mean, you know, when your friends have perfume that costs $60,000, one bottle, they probably have some other stuff. (laughs) I'm just trying to say, like, Jesus didn't like wealthy people. No, he didn't like people who trusted in wealth. But when Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, when, you know, Mar- Mary's like pouring a $60,000, a one year's wages, whatever that is. You know, $60,000 worth of ointment over Jesus' head. I'm like, if she's got $60,000 perfume, you probably got a nice house. I, I don't know, I've never seen a woman say, I'll take perfume instead of the house. <laughs> it's not in my house. <laughs> Would you like to have this perfume or a nice house? I'll take the perfume now maybe shoes (laughs) my wife must have 30 pairs of shoes and every time she this list about every too much goes, I have no shoes to wear (laughs) well that is a relative statement where am I going I have no idea I'm simply saying if you invite a crowd Like Think about it. If we had a conference with 5,000 people, and we put in the conference brochure, meals provided, and the only thing we have is a boy's lunch. Like, how are we going to provide lunch? We got Jesus. Brought one bag. (laughs) How many of you know, if Jesus could feed 5,000 men plus women and children with a boy's lunch, he's not poor. Well, he didn't have a lot of money. He don't need money. What do you need money for? Well, for wine. No, Jesus makes wine. For food. No, Jesus makes food. Just, and I'm saying like, I want to be like Jesus, so I want to be poor. I want to be like Jesus too. Not poor. Powerful. And I know I'm being kind of funny, so please don't tweet all that. I'm being a little funny and facetious just to say that it is frustrating when people have a, a, a poverty gospel, intentional, but then they don't have money for stuff and they, have to, they don't have any problem asking people who don't have that mentality, who actually have extra. And I'm saying, is it not incongruent? Joking aside, is that not incongruent? Does it not take money to help a city. I can tell you, we're learning that. Like right now, I would love, we need $100 million to build our building, and we need probably a billion dollars to change our city forever. If I had a billion dollars, I could change our city. I'm saying, money matters. You can pray, ah, oh, ah, uh-uh, it doesn't matter to me. Well, then stop pretending it does. Stop praying for provision. And I'm saying we all know it does. We don't like it in a sermon, but we go home and practically need it. Right? We don't like when people preach about it. We don't like when people ask for our money. But the truth is, is that it takes money to, to have a church. It takes money to have a city. It takes money to have a school. It takes money to educate your kids. It takes money to have a house. So, like, you know, we can, we can like, strain a gnat when we're swallowing the camel. And I'm saying, what if we just embraced prosperity? What if we said to God, God bless me so I can bless my city. God, make me so wealthy I can fund the whole police department myself. But wouldn't you like to have the kind of provision that you could rock your city? Wouldn't you like to have the provision that you could rock your state? That you could literally fund righteousness? That you could fund righteousness. I'm just saying, can we get out of money doesn't matter? It does matter. It matters. And as long as we run around saying it doesn't matter, we're not going to have the funds we need to actually change history. So let's embrace the, the parable of the talents. And the parable of the Midas. Let's say to God, God, teach us how to change ecosystems so that we move from poverty ecosystems to wealth ecosystems. Teach us how money makes money. Teach us how to create ecosystems of wealth. Give us Deuteronomy 8.18. I am going to give you, Moses said. God said to Moses, tell the people, and I'm almost done. Tell the people, I think I'm almost done. Tell the people. (laughs) Tell the people. I'm giving them power to make wealth. Listen to the rest of the verse. So that I might confirm my covenant with them. I'm giving them power to make wealth. Why? Did you get this? I'm giving them money. No I'm not. I'm giving them the ability to make money. I'm giving, actually the word there, power to make wealth, the word power is an army. I'm giving you an invisible army that will attract wealth to you. And the reason is, is so everyone will know, I have a covenant with you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisbelleton.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.